this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Anchor. If you don't know what Anchor is and you're thinking about starting a podcast, you should probably find out what Anchor is because Anchor is a free way to host your podcasts. It also gives you creation tools like the ability to record yourself, record with other people, edit as well, and do it from your phone or your computer. You don't need to go buy fancy tools to start. You can start with Anchor. And you can hit the nice distribute button, and it's going to send it out to all the places you want it to be, like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and more. In addition to that, you can make money from your podcast with no basic listenership. In other words, if you only have 10 people because you're just starting, you can still monetize that. It's really hard to find a better place to start. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm and get started on the crazy podcast journey. this first episode under the new name, this new refocusing of everything into one place. I've been really anxious to do it, but now that I have the microphone on, I'm a, a little bit terrified. A little bit terrified because one of the one of the really difficult things for me to do in everything that I've ever done in the audio field in podcasting is it becomes really difficult for me to go into an episode by myself with no other person to talk to without a ton of notes. If you've listened to enough of my episodes, regardless of which podcast you're coming from, you know I don't just sit and read notes. That I have a more conversational aspect. But I always have like a, at least an arc of where I want to go. You know, this is the this is the story of this case, if it's further questions, or this is what I thought about this book, if it was something for semi-literate. This is the idea that I'm struggling with, the challenge that I'm facing, if it was brainstorms. Even the stuff that like uh, Lamb and I would do, and I was all I would always come in with things prepped. Although, of course, when Lamb is on the podcast. I don't have to worry as much because I have someone else there. And just the chemistry of talking to someone, especially someone that I enjoy talking to, I don't worry about it. The momentum moves and it flows. I've got to take off this. I've got this bracelet on that's making a ton of noise. Sorry about that. Okay. So I'm sitting down to get ready to do this podcast. And I've been, like I said, so psyched to do this, to get into this more conversational and more overlapping way of doing things where the ideas of one show mix with the others because it's really 
my brain really functions more like that, right? We're not all compartmentalized. You know, I don't, when I think of true crime, all I think of is true crime. Nobody does that. Everything else in your life bleeds in. That's what makes humans kind of incredible machines, isn't it? That we have all of these things mixing together. It's this, uh, there's a book called uh, Imagine. And it's by, oh my God, what's the guy's name? Jonah, Jonah Lehrer. I'm never, I'm never sure how to pronounce it. It's L-E-H-R-E-R. And it's this book about creativity. I think it came out in like uh, 2015, something like that. Actually, maybe even earlier than that, maybe a few years earlier than that. But there was a big scandal about this book because Lehrer got caught um, plagiarizing. Actually, I, I don't even know if the term plagiarize applies correctly to what he did. And my understanding of plagiarism is when you, you steal something from someone. But what he did apparently was make things up. <laughs> he had some quotes, if I remember correctly, there were some quotes from Bob Dylan that Bob Dylan didn't necessarily ever say, or he took two things and squished them together to make them say what he wanted it to say. It was something he had been accused of in the past in his writing for uh, newspapers or magazines, whatever he did before. I'm honestly, over time, I, I honestly, I feel really bad for the guy. He got publicly shamed for this and he really hasn't had a career since. Like, no one has forgiven him. He tried to do something a couple years ago and people just savaged him. I don't like that kind of cruelty. I just think that's, I mean, it's not like, yeah, sure, you um, made some stuff up in your book. It's not like the dude murdered somebody. But we're far more forgiving of people who do stuff like that. Very strange. But I bring the book up because even though it was discredited, when I read it, I didn't know that because it hadn't happened yet. It was a great book. It was a really good book. And even if he made some of the stuff up, the overall arc of how creativity works in the book, the way he explains it, it's really well done. It's kind of like a, almost like a Malcolm Gladwell deconstruction of the idea. And it's, it's just, I don't think you can find a copy of it anymore. But one of the things that he mentions in there that I had never heard of is the way that the company 3M functions. 3M as in the people who make post-it notes. They also make a whole bunch of other things, like light bulbs and flat screen televisions, sandpaper, all tape. They have, they actually have, 3M has no one core product. You know, like Coca-Cola, what's Coca-Cola make? They make Coke. McDonald's, what do they make? Hamburgers. They make other stuff, but hamburgers is their main thing, right? 3M doesn't have one of those. And it's purposeful. It's a purposeful choice because of the way that they see that the human mind works. That putting somebody in this department and this department together to work together on something or to have them, they have like these fairs. If I remember, I might be confusing some of this with Google because Google stole or not stole, but Google took a lot of the ideas of the way that 3M functioned and instituted into the way that Google functions. 
So they will, both of these companies will take people and move them from department to department so that they're never just stuck on one thing, so that they're always moving on to new things because what they bring might create an innovation and has. Like for 3M to discover how to do flat screen panels, flat screen television panels, was because the electronics department was talking to the tape department. And they said, well, what if we took essentially a piece of tape and put all the electronics on the back of that? What would that be? And so I'm talking about all this stuff because this is the way that I, I'm looking at the way that this whole new show or new direction, new name, is the way I see it going. To be able to let those things mix together, I feel like I'm, I'm going to get somewhere that I've been trying to get for a very long time, but I've been compartmentalized and it hasn't happened. But because of that, I sat down and I said, okay, I need to, you know, I got to feed that need to have notes that need to be prepped, that need to be, that need to have an arc, that need to just not be hanging out there loose with no other person to save me. And I started, I said, you know, like I'll go through the notes that I've been taking for the past couple of weeks and just see if there's anything interesting that I want to touch on. I started moving a couple of things over and then I just started going out and stop myself. I stopped myself because that tendency can go overboard. It's good to come in, you know, I don't want to just come in and turn on this and just let's see what happens because that philosophy can end up with a, nothing happening or something really boring happening, something that I would end up deleting and not releasing. But I have this tendency to go overboard with that to start filling notes on top of notes, on top of notes, on top of notes. And then I've got this page and pages and pages of stuff. And then it's like, when you have that much stuff, oh, you're going to read all of that? Well, I don't like to read it all. You know, like, well, I just want prompts. Like, oh, remember that thing? In case, you know, if, in case you get to a point where the train of thought has stopped, here is a, here's a reminder of what the tracks look like, how to get back on the road. Just those little prompts. So that's a little bit why I feel a little nervous because uh, I'm breaking a new ground here. Now, I don't think I said this in the last episode, kind of explaining what this was going to be, but this is in the new description of the show. I look at this show as a mixture of one of my favorite things, which is a notebook. You know, this is a notebook in the sense that it's disparate pieces. You know, it's in that arc that I was talking about, I'm not going for that arc. I'm going for this is interesting, this is interesting, this is interesting. Let me see what happens. You know, maybe I end up talking about this the whole time, or maybe I have to go to five different things because then there's not that much there. You know, like I know when I when I do the next, I think it's gonna be the next episode, which will be on the Death in Oslo episode of the new Unsolved Mysteries, that's going to be the whole episode. I don't imagine talking about that and then jumping to another topic. <laughs> so I have a feeling when I do true crime stuff that they'll probably be fairly self-contained. Unless I have, you know, like some small note about something true crime. But for the most part, I can see certain things being just one episode and having that arc. But not because I forced it, but because it just makes sense for it to be done that way. 
The other thing that I look at when I look at this show is there's the notebook, this mingling of ideas, and then this, what we're doing right now, me just talking it out, me just turning on the microphone and moving forward. Because to me, it reminds me of something that the more I think about it, I'm not positive (laughs) actually existed the way that I think it did. I'll get back to that in a second. But let me ask you this first. Do you ever have the experience of looking back on something from when you were younger and you have this concept of what it was, but then when you go look at it, it was different. It was very different. I think almost everybody can say yes to that, but let me add something onto that. Have you ever built something in your life based on the concept of that thing that maybe didn't exist the way that you think it existed. Because to me, I remember, I seem to remember, especially like in the 80s, there being this phenomena of the late night radio. And yes, there's late night radio. There's still late night radio to this day. You have Coast to Coast AM, which is probably one of the most famous all night radio programs where they get on and they talk about the paranormal for like four or five hours every night. But when I go and I listen to that show, I was kind of expecting it to be, you know, like I wasn't, I wasn't one of the people that knew about Coast to Coast. It just never, it never made its way into my realm. I'd never heard of it until a couple of years ago. But when I heard it, I was like, oh, that that's the thing that I've been remembering, right? That's late night radio. What I was thinking it was going to be is this. Someone, except not in their room, not in front of a computer, but someone in a booth at a radio station late at night talking to maybe nobody, talking to maybe empty air every once in a while, getting a phone call, talking to the caller. But when I listened to Coast to Coast and I listened to come of the, a couple of the other well-known radio late-night shows. It was a lot, a lot of Collins and a lot of guests and a lot of commercials and a lot of bing, boom, bam, boom, boom, noises and sound effects and uh, all this rigmarole. And that's not what I remember it being. I remember being this, like just this microphone and this voice, and this person talking. And every once in a while, they would break for a commercial. Maybe they'd break for a song. And maybe maybe this only existed in movies. Maybe it never existed in real life. I don't know. But it was always something that I latched onto. It's not like I even listened to these things. But the idea of it, for some reason, it, maybe I didn't latch onto it. Maybe it latched onto me. Because it's been with me all these years. And when I started doing podcasting, it started surfacing. And it didn't start to surface in a visible way, in a way that I recognized. It was just like this longing for something. That when I started, when I put on these headphones, and after doing it long enough, when I started doing, actually, it was when I started doing solo stuff. I didn't think about it when I was doing stuff with Lamb because that was just a conversation. So for the first three or four, three years, two years, whatever it was, I didn't think about it. But then when he wasn't here anymore, 
and I was doing it by myself. And there's nothing but the, the light buzz of the room that you guys will never hear because when I go into edit, I have a nice little plug-in that creates a little noise gate and cuts that off so you can't hear it. But for me, it's just that light buzz in the room and the sound of my voice. And something about the mood of that, it just took me to what maybe was an imaginary memory of late night radio. And I've been thinking about that a lot this week. You know, like I said, I've been really excited to do this, to jump in, to do it, to create this thing that's been in my head. But what I've also been facing is like the fact that maybe what I'm remembering is not real. And what struck me five minutes before I, before I turned this on, five minutes that I was waiting for the heater to go off so that it wouldn't be in the background, it struck me the, you know, there's the, the, the Gandhi quote, be the change you wish to see in the world. There's also many, many artists who have said the thing that you want, whether it's a book or the album or the movie, that you want to see that nobody's made, that's your job to make it. So maybe this late night radio format of just the voice and the silence and whatever this is, this kind of talking, or just off the top of my head, if it didn't exist, then it's my job to create it. And if if I'm doing something that's been done before, then it makes me no different than any other human either. We're continually doing things that somebody else has already done. I just haven't done it. And that's one of the reasons that filling up this page with notes was something I didn't want to do because it loses this. You know, everything I'm talking about here, I don't have notes for this. You know what I have written for the part that we talked about? Notebook, late night radio. Those are my prompts. This is all stuff that I'm feeling, the stuff that I'm thinking, stuff that's on my mind. Not just now, but obviously for a very long time. Another reason that I was really nervous to do this is because this election, which we're not going to talk about, this election, it's been difficult for everybody. And it's been really hard to, I don't have a problem with talking about stuff that doesn't have to do with that. You know, because we all need distractions. I hate when something happens in the news and I turn on a podcast that will say that never has to do with politics and it's about politics. And I turn on the next one and it's about politics. And then it's like, you can't escape this thing that maybe you just want to escape for an hour or two. I hate that. So I understand. I don't feel guilt about talking about something that's less important than what's going on in the world because I know that has a place. But it's so, this whole thing is taking over such a huge part of, not even my active memory, like my passive memory. It's like, you know that hum I mentioned in the room? This whole thing is like that hum. You know, like if I just, if I stop and I'm quiet and listen for it, I can hear it and I can focus on it and I can go there. 
But if I'm doing other things, I can forget it's there a little bit. But there's still part of my brain, even when I forget, that's processing that it's there. And so even though technically in some way we are talking about it, I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want to talk about it because I feel like it's like, it's like politics is that one topic that like, if you go there, you never come back. You know, you don't just talk about it once and never bring it up again, because once you've opened that door, you know, you can open that door again. Actually, maybe it's not the only topic. Now that I, I remember, there's a quote from Kurt Vonnegut about sex and why he never put sex in his books. And I'm not going to remember it exactly the way he said it, because I don't have that machine-like memory. But essentially what he said is he didn't put sex in his books because he feels like once you introduce that into the book, nobody wants to hear about uh, the mining process in a town or what it's like to scuba dive. You know, once you introduce that tension of sexuality into a book, that's what people want to hear about. So the rest of the book is, you know, it's out the window. So much, so many of these, these thoughts and these things that we hear, you know, these, this concept of late night radio, this idea from Kurt Vonnegut. So I just didn't, I didn't, and I don't want to go there. I think the, the amount that I've touched on it right now is enough. I acknowledge the fact that it exists. And I'll tell you a funny story wanting this escape that I was talking about, wanting to not think about that. And I said, you know, I'm just going to sit down. I'm going to read a book. And I have this tendency to jump from book to book. I don't read just one book. And I've got a ton on the coffee table over there. Anybody that listens to semi-literate or listen to the semi-literate feed before I brought everything here, has heard me mention this. I looked at the books on my shelf. I looked at the books on my coffee table. What do I want to read? What's a distraction? And there's this book, and I actually hesitate to call it a book because I think tome is a better word. It's a big book. It's like 1,200 pages. It's a big book. It's called Cultural Amnesia by Clive James. And essentially, it's an anthology. Uh, it's not an anthology. I mean, it's an, an anthology of essays. The whole premise of the book is essentially that there are things, there are people that Clive James believes that we have, we've forgotten about or we don't think about enough. That we're, our culture is, you know, getting amnesia. We're losing them. You know, whether it's an an old vaudevillian comedian or a, a politician. So he, he has these essays about them, short little essays. I mean, there must be in this big book, probably close to maybe, I'd say, 100 people. And they're not all good people. This isn't like some nostalgic, like, this person was really cool when they did this. The essays sometimes use these people as a starting place, and then he kind of goes somewhere else with it and then brings it back around. It's more about the significance of the person almost as a symbol. And it's, I mean, it's a fantastic book. I love it. I've owned it for 
probably five years. Still haven't even got halfway through it because it's not like one of those books that you power through. And like I said, I don't tend to power through books anyways, but this book in particular, it's like one that you want to, you just want to move with when you're in the, when you're in the place for it. Read about a couple people and let that just kind of like stick with you for a while. Don't read the next one and just forget the one from before. We have a tendency to do that sometimes. We have a tendency to just keep putting input in and just keep putting input and adding more input. And what happens is we don't spend enough time with each of the inputs that we are putting in. And they, you know, like the the VCR tapes that they used to have that would record this uh, surveillance footage in convenience stores. What happens in every cop show from like the 80s and the 90s? They go to get the tape. It's been written over. It's on a cycle. Every 24 hours, it writes over the video from the day before. Our brains are kind of like that. You put stuff in too fast, and it just kind of writes over the other stuff. I've learned this the hard way twice. When, uh, God, if I can remember what it's called, when Netflix first started. When they first started... Some of you might not remember this. The, pro, the the business model was that they mail you, in the physical mail, a DVD of a movie. So you go onto their website and you say, I want to see Charlie Chaplin's The Dictator. Or I want to see When Harry Met Sally. Or I want to see Die Hard. And they mail it to you. Comes in, they came in, they used to come in this little envelope. No case either. Just literally the disc. I don't know how these things survived, but it was literally just the disc inside a paper envelope. You take it out and you watch the damn movie and then you return it. And then you pick it, you know, you had this cue. That's where the idea of the cue originally came from. I mean, aside from the physical cue of people waiting in line, which is a British terminology for waiting in line, they're waiting in the queue. But the queue, the list, the thing that are in all these streaming apps, it came from Netflix. You go in, you say, I want to see this movie, I want to see this movie, I want to see this movie, I want to see this movie. And the reason you had the queue was because they're physical discs. So like library books, sometimes they're checked out. So just because, you know, you want to see Ghostbusters again, doesn't mean that somebody else isn't already... You know, it doesn't already have it at their house. You know, they buy, obviously, many, many versions of the DVDs, but it, it would happen, especially if it was a new movie. Good luck. It was like six months. So it would go down to the next thing in your queue. So you just create this queue, like, I want to see all these movies. You can get them to me whenever you can. Then they had this crazy thing, a thing that I can't remember the name of. <laughs> but it was this crazy idea of watching videos online. And you might not believe this, considering that it's like the the main, well, one of the two main modes that people watch entertainment now. Either they have still have cable television or on-the-air television, or they stream. But when, it, when this first came out, it might have been called Netflix Stream. I don't remember. But when it first came out, 
Nobody thought it was anything of it. Like, man, whatever. But I saw something there. I didn't see, maybe, I definitely didn't see it becoming what it is now. But what I saw was, hmm, I can I can watch a movie that comes to me in the mail. But, you know, like, you have to mail it. And even though I live in San Jose, California, which is about 12 minutes from Netflix headquarters, where the DVDs are coming from, it would still take a day or two. You know, actually, it would take about, I think it was like a, it's either a two or three day process because, you know, you'd have to mail the DVD and then another one would have to come to you. So it's at least two days. I think three was average. So you're not watching a movie every day because you don't have a movie every day. So I saw this streaming thing and I was like, oh, that's cool. It can fill the gaps, you know, like I can watch the DVD, send it back and then stream a movie, stream a movie, stream a movie new DVD comes. So continual stream. And the thing about it too, maybe I didn't mention this, but the streaming, it didn't have everything. I mean, even today, nothing has everything. But you can generally find almost anything. They only had license to stream a very small percentage of the DVDs. So if the DVDs, because there was no... God, I hope I hope I'm not just reiterating all this for people who already know it or remember it. But let's go down memory lane here. Pretty sure they had almost everything on DVD. The licensing was different because it was like being blockbuster, you know, like being a movie rental place. But they had like maybe, maybe, maybe 10% that was available for streaming. I got into this all of a sudden. I went from realizing like, oh, I can fill the days that the DVDs are coming with these streaming movies. I got to realize like, I can watch more than one movie. I can watch like, I can watch like a shitload of these movies. What if I try to watch all of them? Because believe it or not, at that time it was actually possible. There was a small enough number of movies and maybe even TV shows on their streaming platform that it was feasible that you could go through all of them. So I, I set myself that goal. And I got to a point where I was watching three, sometimes four movies a day. Just devouring movies. And because the content that these the, the movies that I was getting on Netflix were a lot of, of foreign films because and I guess they didn't think anybody gave a shit about them. Whoever licensed them was like, sure, you want to do what on the internet? Oh, okay, whatever. All this, the normal, we'll use the air quotes there, normal, the popular, the average stuff the American movies, all of that stuff. That was mostly on DVD. So I was watching these foreign films, and if you've watched foreign films, at least the ones that actually make it to us, they're deep. They're artful. And it doesn't mean that they don't make poppy crap like we do. It's just we don't know. 
we got enough of our own copy crap. We don't watch theirs. But the good stuff. For decades, the good stuff. Since probably the at least the 50s, the good stuff has been coming over here. I watched, you know, Kira Kurosawa, a bunch of, actually a bunch of Asian, a bunch of Asian films. But this stuff was heavy. And I was just devouring so much of it. that I got to a point where someone had asked me like, hey, have you seen any good movies lately? I say, oh yeah, I've seen a ton. Really, which ones? Uh, um, and I'm not exaggerated. I could not take all of this data that had been pumped in my head and break it out, parse it into movies. I couldn't, I couldn't pull together one or two titles. Because in my head, it was just all mashed together because I had just been gorging myself. And I made that mistake again a couple years later when I decided I was going to read 100 books in a year. And I ended up reading way more than that. But in order to do it, I actually wrote an article about this that uh, The Observer republished. It's called uh, Read... It's called. <laughs> it's, been, it's been like five years. Uh, read less, learn more. I believe that's what it was called. I'll put a note. I mean, a note. Put a link in the description if you want to check it out. But yeah, the basic idea of it is I read a bunch of books, and in order to do it, I was doing speed reading. I was listening to audio books at three times speed, and I was just ripping through so many books that I wasn't. I wasn't learning anything. I wasn't retaining it, and I wasn't pulling any of it into my actual long-term memory. And to this day, there are things, there, there are books that I read that year that I can look at the title and remember very little, very little about it. You know, it's kind of like uh, if you were in a car and you got to a town, this beautiful village, somebody let you out and said, meet you on the other side of the village and you walk through the village you have this beautiful experience maybe you spend the day in the village you have lunch at a cafe and you walk through the rose garden you have the experience you remember this village you've absorbed it you've digested it and that'd be very different than if the person in the car just went 80 miles an hour through the village without stopping have you been there Technically, what do you remember? Mm, there were some buildings, and some of them, I think, were orange. That's what it's like. You know, just rip through that stuff. But I picked up that cultural amnesia book, and I wanted to be distracted. I didn't want to think about things, and this is the book that I hadn't picked up in, like, two years. This book that I love. I hadn't picked up in two years because it just it hadn't been the right book. I'd been on other books. I said, you know, I'm just going to read one profile, one essay, whatever. And it's just uh, this, this will be the magic that I need right now. I sat down and I had this nice little bookmark that had been in there, holding the perfect place in the book for me for years. And I plopped it open. 
And oh my God. Who is the article on? Joseph Goebbels. Yeah, the Minister of Propaganda for the Nazi Party. Now, like I said, James didn't just write these essays on people that he admired or that he liked. He wrote them about people that he felt made a significant cultural impact. And sometimes the cultural impact that we make is awful, terrible. And believe me, I part of me thought like, hey, you know, like, I guess, you know, this will teach me something about politics. And I started thinking a lot about, um, I started thinking about Hannah Arendt and the subtitle of her book in in my life. Because I've definitely been to the point where I would get an email and like, oh, don't want to deal with that. And I started to wonder if he was right. Like if I could find these loose threads and just go complete those, would I be able to prevent falling into a bout of depression or a bout of anxiety? And as I'm in the end of fall and the beginning of winter here and going through seasonal depression, I started to wonder if that could affect that. That if instead of burrowing or the, the temptation or the desire to burrow, if I could just become a little more productive, um, I don't like that word in this context. If I could become more, if I could just go around picking up loose threads and completing those loose threads, would winter become a little bit easier? You know, I'm not looking for a miracle here. But if it gave me 10, 15% relief, that would be huge. Because as I said, it's a delicate balance. So that 10, 15% can be enough to shift the whole mass of mental, of the mental state for a season. So I'd, I've been spinning that idea in my head. And, I, and because of that, I started to notice these loose threads. I noticed that, uh, for example, I've been having, like I said, I always have money. Something with money always comes up in the winter. Well, I have some bills that I haven't been able to pay 100% of. I've been sending them money, but not 100%. So they call me and they call me. Well, I've been avoiding calling them. And uh, I had the dental issue that I mentioned. And I, I avoided calling the dentist. Like, why, why did I avoid calling the dentist? I started asking myself that. And I, I think, I'm not positive if Blind Boy says this or if this is something I came to in my, my contemplation, but I started to think about a precipitating event. I started to think about those loose threads. Is there one loose thread that starts everything? In the sense that because I didn't do this thing, I felt overwhelmed. I, you know, I felt a little tired mentally, and I didn't want to do this thing, which is second in line. And then by the time I got further down the line, then I was mentally exhausted, and I didn't want to call a dentist. I didn't want to call the, the credit card company. Was there a big bang moment, let's say? 
So I started to look around at all the things that I was avoiding, all the things I didn't want to do, wondering what this initial event, this initial loose thread, if you lean into who you are. Another great piece of advice, being scared is a symptom that you're doing it right. If you're not scared, you're not trying hard enough. That's an exact quote from Seth Godin. Another quote from Godin. You're scared because you're reaching. You're making a big promise. And this goes back to James Altucher. James Altucher is one of his more famous things that he's talked about in the years he's been podcasting and writing books is that he says he never publishes a blog unless he's scared to. Because he's then he's not risking anything. And I think that risk and that pure idea thing, they're, they're kind of connected, aren't they? That the risk can be that your pure idea will be rejected and that people will hate you. And yes, people will hate you. Because when you do something pure and you do something that's irreplaceable, you do something that's completely you and you focus on the making and maybe you make a ton of it and you focus on it being a movement and not going for the big win, people are going to be repelled by it. It's human nature, as McLeod said. It's human nature. They will be repelled by it. Some people will even find it ugly because we think things that are new, things that we're not comfortable with, we think they're ugly. And a great example of this, I remember, I don't know how many years ago it was, so before Taylor Swift really became a pop star, she was still like a country star. And I saw her, I think I was at somebody's house and they were watching like the country music awards. And I saw her go up to get an award and I said, that girl is beautiful. And everybody in the room looked at me like, like I was crazy. Like what? She's weird looking. Now, fast forward to 2020. Do people still say that about her? No, they say she's beautiful. Why? Because she looked different than what people expected her to look like. But then once they got used to what she looked like, they saw that she's beautiful. We resist what's new because it's new and we don't know how to deal with it. Jack Kerouac, the way that he wrote his spontaneous prose style of writing, long, drawn-out sentences, and he would do things where he would essentially where he would pile words on because he he believed that when you try to describe something when when you look at when you look at something like a basketball and you say it's an orange basketball yeah it's an orange basketball but you say you know it's it's an orange it's a tangerine it's a persimmon basketball and you just keep stacking descriptors on top that that stack of words that the orange and tangerine and persimmon and rust and whatever other things that it kind of looks like when you stack all of those together that's closer to what it looks like than just the one that most writers would pick so his writing was wildly different and he would write thinking about being a jazz horn player instead of the metered rhythm of a normal writer's sentence. Capote said of Jack Kerouac, 
that he was that on the road, he said, that's not writing, it's just typing. Because Capote thought it was ugly. It was new. Picasso and Jackson Pollock, people hated their paintings. This is, I actually, I was thinking about albums that we love or the, as a society, you know, like things that we consider classic albums. Some of them got bad reviews when they came out. So I found a few. I'm going to share them with you. Led Zeppelin's first album. Now, some of these are uh, paraphrases, you know, like somebody's doctored up the words because it wasn't super clear without the context. So these aren't all exact quotes. They're like 95% quotes. And I didn't write down who the reporters are because it doesn't really matter because they were so wrong. (laughs) But Led Zeppelin, Jimmy Page is a very limited producer and a writer of weak, unimaginative songs. If Led Zepp are to help fill the void created by the demise of Cream, they will have to find a producer and editor and some material worthy of their collective attention. Yikes. Radiohead's OK Computer. Someone said, Radiohead wouldn't know a tragic hero if they were cramming for their A-levels. I have no idea what that means, by the way. (laughs) And their idea of soul is Bono, who they imitate further at the risk of looking even more ridiculous than they already do. Another person wrote of another Radiohead album, Kid A. It is the sound of Tom York ramming his head firmly up his own arse, hearing the rumblings of his intestinal wind and deciding to share it with the world. Yeah, someone described Kid A as Tom York's fart. (laughs) How about uh, Simon and Garfunkel, Bridge Over Troubled Waters? Nearly all of the songs are hopelessly mediocre. Michael Jackson's Bad was described as a letdown to a reviewer at the Los Angeles Times. The Beatles, Abbey Road, an unmitigated disaster. The Beatles, Revolver, a load of rubbish, really. <laughs> People are going to shit on things you do. That's a, But if you have the focus, you know you're doing all of the things that we've been talking about. It doesn't matter. Seth Godin has a really, really interesting insight on one-star reviews. He says one-star reviews, essentially he says that they're not actually a criticism of your work. Because what a one-star reviewer is saying, I wanted this, and what I got is not that. It just means that the wrong person got what you made. That they're not your audience. That these aren't the people that you made this for. And you aren't what they were looking for. A one-star review is essentially saying, this is not for me. So it's not actually a criticism of your work. It's a criticism of the fact that, damn, I ordered red and I got blue. So don't pay attention to them. You can't learn anything from them. They're not going to teach you how to be better because they're not your audience. So they have no idea how what you're doing could be better. You have to, I've said this before, you have to lean into your weird. The thing that stands out in what you create that people often tell you you should change 
might actually be the thing that you should focus on more because that might be the thing that makes you unique. It might be the ugly that people are not comfortable with yet. It took me a long time to feel confident with talking into this microphone and hearing the way that sometimes I move through sentences like William Shatner. And sometimes I pause because I need to think about the rest of my sentence. And sometimes I stumble over words. And sometimes I start sentences and jump to other sentences. But that's my style. It's how I talk in real life. I'm not putting on an air. And I'm not nervous because I'm in front of a microphone. I'm literally learning more and more to talk the way that I talk in real life. It's me being me. And it took a while to accept that. So the final, the final insight from Seth Godin that I'm going to share is that innovation and art, they come from things that might not work. And you have to accept that too, that what you're doing might not work at all. But if you don't do the things that might not work, you'll never get the things you'll never get to the things that you actually want to create. Because we don't all have 100% accuracy with our ideas. But if you don't make things when you think about them, if you spend too much time mitigating whether they'll work or not, you've already lost the battle. You have to make all of it, I think. You know, not all at once, but... The ideas that the ones that pull at you that you can't let go of, you got to do them. And trust me, it sucks sometimes. It sucks because sometimes you're so excited about it and and nobody else is. Because you, you're not, this has nothing to do with the first order connections and second order connection. This has to do with the fact that nobody knows who you are yet. You know, if you if you make something and everybody in the world sees it, the chances of nobody liking it, I would say are zero. But the problem is, when you make something now, and or any stage below that, I mean, even the most famous people are stages below that. When you let it go into the world and you find out nobody likes it, it's not that nobody likes it. It means that nobody heard it who heard it or nobody who saw it liked it. The people who would like it just didn't know it existed. So you have to make those things. And I think this goes back to that numbers thing of, of just focusing on the making, you know, 200 Grateful Dead albums. Well, maybe the Grateful Dead made an album that nobody paid attention to, but they kept making albums. And people started connecting with those albums and like, oh, you know what? This this, this 10th album they made, I love that one. I'm going to go back and listen to some of the other ones. And they go back and they hear number two. And maybe number two was the album nobody listened to. And this person who liked album 10, here's number two and goes, oh, I love this. That's the argument for making a lot, right? Because the things you make now and the things you make in the future might lead people to the things you made in the past that nobody that nobody was interested in that's my theory at least 
I mean, what the hell do I know? I'm making podcasts every day. Do I have a huge audience? No, I'm still playing the long game that I'm describing here. But I'm being me. I'm delivering the pure ideas. I'm doing as many of these things that I can. And I'm going to keep listening to Seth Godin episodes over the next week. Maybe we'll have another episode where I bring in some more of his ideas because they're good. They're really good ideas. They get me they get me excited. They get me excited because it's not asking me to to redefine everything. It's asking me, he's asking me to see what I'm already doing and to essentially lean into it and to do what is naturally what I am driven to do and that the people who like it, it's there for them. I won't say they'll find it because you never know, but it's there. It exists. That's, that's comforting. I think that's comforting on the days when you feel like nobody gives a shit. Sometimes that's enough. It's like somebody, maybe someday somebody will find it and they will like it. That's enough. So anyways, hope you enjoyed this episode. Obviously I'm putting this one into the public feed because this one is full of insights that I think the world needs to hear. I'm going to put the links to the two episodes that I'm that I've pulled these ideas out of with Seth Godin. I I recommend you go to the source. You go listen to him. He's also far more articulate and such a better, so much better at ex- explaining than I am. So go check those out and uh, and the dinner bell just rang, which means it's time for me to give the dog the treat which means I didn't plan my recording well. <laughs> if you want to follow me on Twitter, you can find me as the real Chad Hall. And there are many ways that you can support this show. I have a page on my website called Lend a Hand. It has 10 different ways you can help support this podcast. One of which, of course, is my Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash Chad Hall. I mentioned it earlier. Go check that out. Check out the other stuff on there, too. Things like uh, buying books from the links in the description that I give. Yeah, that helps. Sharing episodes on social media. Those are a couple of the things. Go check out the other things on there. And if you enjoyed this particular episode, I'm going to recommend an episode from the archive. This is just from a few days ago. If you haven't heard the episode, uh, episode 28, an introduction to the elephant, that's where I kind of talk about uh, some of the obsessions that I've had recently, like with late night radio and public access television and VHS culture, and how that plays into or possibly plays into my creativity. So go check that one out. And uh, I guess that's enough. So uh, talk to you whenever, whenever I'm back. Bye.